This podcast has been paid for by the Major World Order. This is Billy Walter Peck. And with me, Hosvar, a.k.a. Heartbreak Hosvar, a.k.a. Handsome Hosvar, a.k.a. What are you doing? My intro, duh. Yeah, but this is a commercial. Oh. <laughs> and I am the big Jake Boski, Jake Wyatt, and this is the Major World Order. We are a podcast focusing on the incredible community that the Major Wrestling Figure Podcast has built. We have interviewed all three of the hosts, Smart Mark. Sterling, Matt Cardona, and Brian Myers, as well as a slew of major marks. Don't forget about Rory Fox. Even Rory Fox. So tune in to anchor.fm slash major world order to find the show and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at major world order. Because when you listen to the MWO, you're MWO for life. Hey, how you doing, everybody out there in Toontown? This is Gary K. Wolf, creator of Roger Rabbit and All Things Toon. Right now, you're listening to Bull Spit with Moose. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bull spit. <laughs> back to another all-new episode of Bull Spit with Moose. Today's guest is an animator, a teacher, and an author. He's written books like Drawing the Line, a book about the animation unions, and he's also written Eat, Drink, and Animate. Hmm. Turns out it's the world's first animator's cookbook. So, it's my pleasure to introduce, from He-Man and Shrek to Roger Rabbit, and oh, so many more, the wonderfully talented Mr. Tom Zito. <laughs> hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. great. Your uh, credit list is like a treasure trove and one of those nesting dolls combined. <laughs> it's like the, you open one and you're like, oh, cool. And you, you, you move another one. You're like, oh, cool. And just when you think you're done. Oh, no, there's more. Which is the uh, bigger uh, passion? Life as an author or life as an animator artist? Well, um, I was always an animation artist. I've been one for 45 years. And um, the writing has kind of come late in life. But then, you know, it's like suddenly you find out, oh, people are interested, you know, in in the stuff you did. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of fortunate enough that when I began my career in the 1970s, a lot of golden age cartoonists were ending theirs so i had a chance to work with uh you know people you know like chuck jones and uh um frank and ollie the nine old men at, at, at disney and you know i was friends with with roy disney's nephew uh you know and you make these kind of connections um the origin of the cookbook which sounds like a pretty crazy idea is um back in the back in the uh, in the 70s i had a chance to work as an assistant to a fellow named uh, Myron Natwick, everybody calls him Grim Natwick, and uh, and uh, he was uh, um, he was originally from Chillicothe, Missouri, but we lived in Hollywood. And and Grim's famous thing was he designed Betty Boop. So so you know I mean I would say Max Fleischer was Betty Boop, but you know, Max Fleischer was the boss. Grim sat down with a blank piece of paper and drew Betty Boop. 
and created him and was the lead animator on that. He was also the lead animator on Snow White for Disney. So a wonderful old man. He lived to be 100 years old, God bless. My word. And, um, but anyway, when I was done, uh, Grimm gave me his personal chili recipe because, you know, he, he was very proud of his chili. You know, and, 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 you know, and I was talking to my publisher and I said, okay, I, I've got the chili recipe, the creator of Betty Boo. And, um, and I also have Walt Disney's personal chili recipe because he was a chili fan. And, um, you know, I, you know, I did some judging and some work in Japan and I got a recipe from Hayao Miyazaki. And I said, you know, I could do a cookbook. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but, uh, why the hell not? You know, so I just started asking friends, you know, I, you know, I was talking with Chuck, you know, Chuck Jones has passed away, but, uh, I was talking with the family. And I said, did, did Chuck have a favorite recipe? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he used to make this omelet. I'm like, okay. So I just started asking, you know, different artists, like, do you have a favorite recipe? And, um, and it, and it's everything from, from, from super complicated, like about three artists later left the business and became professional chefs to <laughs> really, really simple. Like there was a, there was a guy named, uh, uh, John Schnepp. Who used to direct um, death metal videos? <laughs> you know, like he would do this, like uh, 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 you know, the, the, like a hardcore metal, and, um, and 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 he had a recipe for a thing called picklebacks, which is uh, bourbon and pickle juice. So it's not my taste, but uh, you know, someone will enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't judge. I just say, okay, <laughs> give it a shot. Some of the dishes are quite easy. You know, and, and some are complex, but, uh, they're, they're, they're all kind of fun, you know, and all come with their own little story. That's awesome. Let's say, cause I, I was curious as to how the, uh, the, the animator's cookbook came about and, you know, and I'll ask again later so that, you know, so I don't forget, like, where can you pick up the animator's cookbook? Cause now I want to get one. Oh, it's on Amazon. Okay. You know, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the places you get regular books and everything, it's a, it's there. So then, what led you down the uh, art path? Well, um, um, you know, um, I'm originally, uh, I'm originally from from New York City. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn when when it wasn't cool, uh, <laughs> when, it was, when it was kind of dreary, and um, uh, it was a son of a fireman firefighter and um i started drawing in school and i noticed the class artist doesn't get beat up as much so that's a that's a good thing and um i, I found that i had a you know a little bit of ability so uh, you know i went to a technical school and it's the first time a teacher showed me how to do animation and i thought oh this is really neat you know and then then later on you know i had a chance to in, to meet some you know regular animation folks and i thought oh you can make a living doing this i didn't know that and, you know, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, my uncles and all, they were all like waterfront truck drivers and things. They all sounded like Tony Soprano, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember I remember my, my Uncle Stanley, my Uncle Stash would look at me and go, so what do you do? What do you do, like uh, Mickey Mouse or something? And uh, you can make money doing that? And I go, yeah. And he, and he just kind of looked at me like, you know, I was from outer space. But I said, yeah, you can make a living doing it. So, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, I started to get my first breaks doing commercials and all, uh, did some, did some stuff for, um, you know, like little films for nutrition. You do little, um, little inserts for Sesame Street. And then, um, yeah, I got a break on a, on a project called, um, an animated film called Raggedy Ann and Andy, which was being worked on, uh, in several cities, including New York. And, um, 
and and it was a musical designed by Joe Raposo, who was the composer of all the Sesame Street music. You know, he wrote on, um, you know, you know, can you tell me how to get how to get to Sesame? You know, and it's not easy being green and you know things like that. And and he meant it as a Broadway as a Broadway review, you know, stage play. But we made it into an animated film. And uh, again, I had, uh, you know, it was the first time I, I I had a chance to work under really veteran animators. You, you, you know, so one of the guys, his name was Arthur Babbitt, Art Babbitt, and um, Art designed Goofy. And uh, he wow. also designed, designed the Wicked Queen and Snow White. So it's like a terrific, terrific artist. You know, uh, I did a lot of Geppetto also in, in Pinocchio. So he was a wonderful old man. And... Um, and there was a couple of those guys. There was a guy named Jerry Chinicky, and Jerry designed Yosemite Sam. You know, so so you start meeting all these like sort of people who had done all this stuff, and most of them are very anonymous. Legends in the industry at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. That's it. You know, it, it, you know, like every business, every business has its has its hierarchy. It's it's um it's it's gods and goddesses. You know, like if you were a stuntman, you would you would go ah, Yakima Kanut. Nobody could fall off a horse like Yakima Kanut, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in and animation, we have our gods and goddesses. Like, we have our famous people. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, you, you really did learn from the masters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, up to that point, uh, especially in the 70s, there wasn't a lot of art instruction. You know, like there wasn't a lot of, um, at least for my type of, of job. You know, I mean, everybody else, you know, fine art and filmmaking and stuff is one thing. But animation was still very much a master and apprentice. You know, if, if, you, if you got a chance to work underneath a master, uh, a master artist, you would just learn so much from them. And um, and also hanging out with them, you know, was was wonderful. You know, you know, you'd sit at you'd sit at a bar with a bunch of these old guys, and they'd be telling all these wonderful old stories about Leon Schlesinger and Walt Disney and all these other people. And then and every once in a while, one old guy would go, you know, someday somebody should put this all in a book. And I, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good idea, you know. You know, because uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, you know, there's a lot of great little, great little stories. Uh, you know, uh, 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 an old layout artist for for Bugs Bunny for Looney Tunes was talking about Leon Schlesinger, who was the uh, who was the producer of, um, of of all the films under Warner Brothers, and and which uh, he said, yeah, I remember Leon's favorite phrase. I'm going to Palm Springs for the week and F you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I never heard, I never read that in a book. Wow. <laughs> well, see, and that's one of the big reasons why I do this is yeah. I like hearing those stories that, you know, you, you, you don't find just everywhere and stories that, really do need to be shared and <laughs> in the age of you know in this digital age where you know once it hits the internet it's forever mm -hmm. they're, they're saved pretty much forever for posterity yeah yeah i i remember uh, uh, chuck jones was telling me about uh, uh one of his favorite stories was chuck started working uh, on looney tunes in like around 1933 and he became a director in 1938 but it wasn't until 1943, about 10 years later, when when Leon retired, that 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 Chuck actually met the Warner Brothers, like the real guys, oh. the the Warner Brothers, you know, because you know he was so far down the line, you know, that they didn't even notice. 
and uh, and he says, you know, he was sitting in a room, he and Friz Frailing and Bob Clampett, and they're in a room and they meet, you know, Jack Warner and Harry Warner and Samuel. And Jack Warner looks at him and says, I don't know what the hell you guys do. All I know is we make Mickey Mouse, right? Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and 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 Friz Frailing said, Yes, we do. Thank you very much. <laughs> and as, as they were leaving, Chris told Chuck, look, he's happy. He leaves us alone. <laughs> Don't correct the guy whose name is on the building. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, you know. I mean, uh, I, I know, Roy, I mean, this is many years later, but uh, Roy Disney, when we were working on Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and all, um, uh, Roy always took that very seriously. and. Uh, Roy liked to say, people ask me if I care. I got to care. My name's on the damn door. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you're right. <laughs> Doesn't say Cito on there. So, don't, yes, sir. <laughs> so, yep, you're in charge. Got it. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, you had a pretty fun stint. I call it a stint, but it's a pretty decent chunk of your career. At, uh, Filmation. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you worked on, you know, I, oh, I don't, I don't know. Let's, let's start with this little known cartoon that nobody knows what it is uh, He Man and the Masters of the Universe. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, it's, it, it's funny. When I started on He Man, um, uh, you know, it was still kind of an unknown quantity. And, and I remember like my first week, I was sitting at my desk, and I turned to the guy next to me, and I said, okay, the name of this show isn't really He-Man, right? That's like a temp title. Like, the real name will be like Ragnar or Karnak or something, you know, like that, you know. not uh, He-Man's just like a temporary. And he goes, no, that's the name of the show. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds weird to me, but all right. Uh, you know, but uh, you know, and, and when we were doing it and everything, it's – I don't think we were aware of like what a, what a giant hit it became. You know, um, uh, since later, you know, I've, you know, I wrote a book on computer graphics, and He Man hit right at the time of the first video game craze, sort of running out of steam, like the very first big um, uh, um, uh, fad for for video games was like Space Invaders and Donkey Kong, yep. Qbert, and you know. All that, all that stuff, that whole first wave of, of arcade, arcade games where everybody went to the arcades all the time and, and played with them there. And by 83, 1983, it had kind of run its course and people were kind of exhausted. Uh, you know, there, there was too many games, there was too many cheap knockoffs and everything and people just got bored. And then, then, and then here comes along this manual toy where it doesn't need instructions. You don't need to plug it into the family TV set. It's just good guy and bad guy. Just have fun. And, um, and, and, and the audience went crazy for it. You know, it was already like the best selling toy in America, uh, before, you know, we, we had barely finished the show, the series. And, and, and it was just like such a big hit. I, I, you know, I wonder if they expected that they had such a hit on their hands. There's a, there's a say, there's a story that, um, He-Man originally began as merchandising for the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Conan the Barbarian. When they were doing the um, uh, merchandise for Conan, uh, 20th Century Fox had a deal with uh, para, uh, with uh, Mattel. 
And what happened was the director uh, turned in an R-rated movie. You know, like it, it was much more violent and sexual than, than Mattel was expecting. And they're like, we can't market toys to an R-rated movie. You know, you know, you can't do that. And they said, well, yeah, but we got warehouses in China full of these little figurines. What do we do? So they changed it slightly and they changed the name. You, you know, that's why that's why he kind of looks like a, a Conan like looking kind of character, this big warrior you know, you know, kind of thing. And the bad guy's a skull guy and everything. Again, it, they, they, they just kind of blundered into like a gigantic hit. Uh, I'm curious whether they, they knew that they had as big a hit as they did. Um, again, too, there was an elderly, um, there was an elderly artist I used to, uh, used to work on my staff who had worked uh, on, on animated films since the forties. And, um, he was a little too elderly to kind of keep all the names straight of the He-Man characters. So, so he used to make up his own names. So, so he'd have He-Man, but then, uh, Skeletor, he called him Bone Man. And, uh, and then Merman, he called him Fish Man. And uh, Beast Man was Dog Man. So, so, so Jim would come over to me and go, I'm working on this scene where Dog Man and Fish Man are talking to Bone Man about how to get He-Man. And I'm like, Jim, I want to work on your show. That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great spinoff. I like it. <laughs> It'd be the GoBots version of uh, E-Man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah. There was all those. There was all those shows at that time. Yeah, you know, because you, 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 know. you know the the other mega trend that was happening at the time was in the sixties. Uh, uh, they tried to uh, the the FCC tried to impose this regulation about about uh, you you can't have children's entertainment uh, characters uh, uh, selling stuff like before nineteen sixty six. You know, you know, there was always, you know, Fred Flintstone was selling cigarettes and uh, yeah. and Bugs Bunny was selling, uh, you know, um, fruit drinks. And, uh, you know, there was lots of uh, lots of characters were involved in merchandising. And then around 66, they kind of made this law about uh, about you have to separate the, the, the children's programming from the uh, from the from the product selling. So that's when like Toucan Sam and the uh, and, and uh, the Cheerios uh, and I'm much called the uh, uh, Rice Krispies, you know, elves and things like that. Stamp, Crackle and Pop and all. They're all separate characters, Tony the Tiger. And all. But then in the 80s, you know, with Reagan, Reagan threw all those r- rules out. And so He-Man and those shows were like the first ones where they were marketed as, as toys and there was the show as well. So then you got GoBots and you got Transformers and you got G.I. Joe and you got Gem. And you know, you know all these all these shows. So there was a big explosion of of of, of toy connected stuff that uh, was very popular in the eighties. He he took the restrictions off, and they came out. Everyone came out swinging. Yeah, an animation director said to me at the time. He says, "You know, it used to be when I got an idea for for a show, uh, uh, you know, to get an idea for a show, I'd go to like a a children's library and I'd look through like children's books and things like that." Now you go to Toys R Us and go, <laughs> go what? That'd, that'd be a good show. The Slinky Show. Yeah, there you go. The Silly Putty Show. I don't know. <laughs> so, but again, that was a wave in the 80s and all. And then by the by the 90s, it had kind of like died out. And yet part of it still remains. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well you know, the fascinating thing is. Because merchandising still drives mm-hmm. sales. And oh, yeah. Yeah. How long I, a I show mean, lasts. <laughs> 
Yeah, what what I'm amazed about is that of of all the stuff that I worked on in the '80s, and I worked on a lot of stuff. Um, uh, He-Man's the one that I, I I still get asked about. You know, I to this day I get invited to He-Man conventions. You know, there's still like fan conventions around the country and stuff. And uh, but um, you know, there's always you know these things they call them power cons. And uh, and it's all about you know Thundercats and and He-Man and you know all the eighty shows you know and a lot of people remember them very fondly. Well, there's another one you did, and I was curious. And I was talking to a buddy of mine leading up to this, and we were both kind of curious if when it came across the table, if you were if you had any hopes that it was related to the movie, or if you knew it was related to the original tv show and that was ghostbusters oh yeah 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 well yeah you see you see you know the movie had come out um you know uh, lou scheimer who was the head of the filmation studio uh yeah in the 60s he had done a live action comedy show with uh forrest tucker and larry storch the two guys from f troop and uh and and uh it was this like silly show of uh uh a comedy thing um, about ghosts and all, but he called his show Ghostbusters. So he had the copyright to the name. So when the movie Ghostbusters came out, Paramount had to come to him. They had to buy the name. Uh, you know, so it's very, you know, very fortunate, you know, on Lou's part. And then, and then Lou decided he was going to make a show, you know, based on Ghostbusters, but uh, uh, he and the studio couldn't agree uh, on the, uh, uh, you know, creatively. Um, on uh, uh, you know, on the look of the show and all. So Paramount did the real Ghostbusters, which was based on the movie, and then Lou made his own Ghostbusters. That the you know the, you call it the original Ghostbusters. So so they were like two separate uh, two separate shows. We have a gorilla. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then eventually you make the jump from one animation giant to another and you end up with disney mm-hmm. yeah at one point uh, the uh, filmation studio was looking a little shaky like they were going through some difficult straits and um and and, and the the parent company filmation was selling them to another company they were selling them to nestle's and all because you know it's the 1980s large companies were always buying each other and swallowing each other and all and that was a you know it's that whole um Gordon Gecko thing that was going on, you know, it, you know, in, in those days, big companies. So filmation was looking a little shaky. I went out to England to visit a friend, Eric Goldberg, you know, the guy who created the genie and Aladdin, and um, and, and I was uh, I was working with him at his little studio in London, and then um, I went up to look at the Roger Rabbit crew that was working on the film in North London, and um, and I ran to, to the director. And the director hired me on the spot. He was like, oh, Cito, you got to work on this movie. It's a great movie. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'm hired. <laughs> so, great. <laughs> and um, so Roger was kind of like my introduction into Disney. And then, and then later, you know, when I returned back to California, you, you know, was, uh, was, you know, I started working at the studio regularly. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and the reason it was done in England was – when Roger Rabbit was first, uh, when the movie was uh, deal was first made, it was basically a, a deal right down the middle between Steven Spielberg's company and Walt Disney. The head of um, uh, of, uh, of the Walt Disney Studio programming at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg, 
was friends with Steven Spielberg, so they knew each other. So, so when they took the property of Roger Rabbit, the idea was, you know, Steven had very good influence with Warner Brothers at the time. And the idea was, we want to put Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny face to face. And Roger Rabbit is the opportunity to make this happen, that we can have Warner characters and Disney characters, you know, in the same movie. And that was like the big selling point for it. And then uh, uh, when it came time to actually do the animation, uh, obviously Disney wanted everything done in their on their lot. And Steven uh, Spielberg wanted everything done at ILM or, or you know, on Paramount lot. So England was the uh, compromise. Like England was like Switzerland, you know, <laughs> it's, the, it's neutral ground for everybody. And Richard Williams, the, the animation director, was very uh, uh, well respected by the old Disney animators as being, you know, the top quality guy. So the idea was like, OK, let's let's do it this way. And, and you know, because Disney's at the time wasn't used to using an outside studio. They would do everything inside. But but in the intervening time, you know, a lot of Tron was done, uh, uh, you know, by by outside venues. And then, of course, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas was being worked on, you know, outside the outside the Disney studio. So they were a little more open now to use their facilities. So everything on, on the production was was right down, the, right down the middle, like everything's in negotiation. So. If there's too much Disney stuff, we have some Warner stuff. If there's too much Warner stuff, we have some Disney stuff. Like if you notice at the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, all the, uh, you know, I animated the last scene, which is all the characters dancing and singing, going off in the distance, uh, you know, and then the iris closes around Porky Pig, and Porky Pig goes, you know, that's all, folks, you know, and then it would go to the credits. Well, after Porky Pig says that, Tinkerbell comes out and pokes him on the nose with a magic wand. That's because the, the Disney legal department said, wait a minute, we're bankrolling this whole movie and you're ending on Porky Pig? No way. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's a perfect ending. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So so bringing out Tinkerbell, the Tinkerbell that comes out is actually the animation from the TV series. It's actually It was actually lifted directly. You know, so it's exactly the same scene that you see that you used to see at the end of the Disneyland, uh, the you know Walt Disney Presents, or you know the Disneyland show. Uh, you know, we had all all the animations in the archives, so I said, oh, well, let's just use it. What the heck? It works. <laughs> <laughs> the good old let's recycle animation uh, technique. Yeah, yeah, just like at the, at the end of Beauty and the Beast, when when Belle and the Beast are are, are waltzing together, uh, well, the Beast gets turned into the prince. And the two of them are waltzing, and it's a long shot, and the camera pulls back, and you know, before the credits start, and you know, and the music's playing. Um, we were at the end of the production, and everybody was exhausted, and the budget was exhausted, so they just took the animation of the of the prince and princess from Sleeping Beauty and repainted it. Said, "Here, there you go." <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else knows. <laughs> so, having worked on um, jumping ahead in your uh, career, yeah. uh, having worked on Roger Rabbit, did that help with how you approached animating Looney Tunes back in action? Yes, it did. Yeah, very much. And and uh, you, you know the great thing about working with these with these old characters is that they have a very special 
particular style all their own. You know, when you animate Disney and you animate Warner Brothers, it's like it's like different languages. It's like, okay, I'm going to be speaking Greek now. Now I'm going to be sweet, speaking Swedish. You know, it, there's a different style to the way they move than the way they handle. And uh, and it's fun to work with those old designs. You, you know, the designs are so beautifully done. I always said that you know when you get a when you get a, a character like Bugs Bunny or, or Yosemite Sam or something to to work with. It's like you're 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 a parking lot attendant, and somebody gives you a Porsche, and you're like, "Ooh, <laughs> it just it just handles well." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just enjoy it, you know. And um, when it brought me into Looney Tunes, you know, it's because I had the experience with Roger, and actually, the the cinematographer who did most of the work with Joe Dante, Dean Cundy, he was the cinematographer of Roger Rabbit as well. So you know, we had a lot of experience, you know, of of people who worked on stuff like that, and um. And it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, a, uh, uh, you know, Brendan Fraser, you know, our star had done the, the mummy movies. You know? So he was very used to acting, uh, uh, you know, with nothing. Because, you know, the hard part when you're a live action actor, having to work with an animated character is very often you're staring into blank space. And we're going to put the character in later, you know, you know, after after the film. So. Usually what they would do is they would take a they would stick a tennis ball on the end of a stick and put an X on it. Uh, so the actor has a, something to focus on. So he looks like he's looking at something, looking in someone's eyes. And then you match the character's eyes to where he's looking, you know, so, so you get the connection. But the great thing with Brendan and like Bob Hoskins before him was they were very good minds. You know, they're, they're, they're very good at, at acting with nothing. You know, uh, there's a scene in Looney Tunes where, where Brendan is supposed to have a fist fight with one of Yosemite Sam's um, um, henchmen, you know, the big, you know, cowboy. And it's a classic sort of barroom brawl. He does this fist fight with no one, you, you know, so he's doing this mime fight, but he's he's giving punches and taking punches, and it, it looked good. You're watching him, you're going, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> That's kicking your own ass. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, it's like, that's why he gets the big bucks. Okay. <laughs> so, I was wondering, could you tell me, what what exactly is a character animator? Okay. All right, well, you know, you know what a character animator does is, is he physically designs the movement, and he designs the performance of the character. It's like somebody else writes it, somebody else, you know, the designer designs it, the art director, you know, sets the style and the color but you know um i always tell students i said if you took five actors and you said you're going to play hamlet you know you know uh, you're going to get five different hamlets you you all know what hamlet says you got a rough idea of what happens to him so what makes those five hamlets different it's the performance so there's a, a certain sort of it's basically you know robert zemeckis called us all actors with uh, he says you're all actors with pencils so uh, so we're really like the acting it is is in the way the character behaves and in terms of the timing you know because timing is a is is a whole thing too here's, here's an example of a timing joke okay knock knock who's there impatient cow impatient cow Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> see that's a that's that's a timing joke <laughs> So it's knowing stuff like that, and, and you know that that makes the character come alive. 
you know, and and, uh, and and the great thing about personality animation when you when your performance is really good, people just you know embrace it. You know, like uh, like people love Ariel the Little Mermaid. You know, like years after the movie came out, people were still buying Ariel stuff. You know, they just love the character so much and identify with the character. You know, you know, just like just like uh, people love the character, the characters in Frozen. You know, they love Elsa and Anna and everything. You, you know, they they they're like their sisters or, or something like that. And when you could create a character, uh, you know, from scratch and everything, it's a, it's a great feel. It's like a Frankenstein feel. It's like you've you created life. You know, that's running around. Say, so, cause yeah, like right after Roger Rabbit, you jumped into The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, your, your credit list is that character animator. It's like, well. They're all characters. What else are you going to animate? Well, I made the water <laughs> yeah. move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. This this affects people who do all the the smoke and the and the and the water and all that stuff. And in in, in Mermaid, uh, a lot of people are animating bubbles. A lot of bubbles. <laughs> What'd you do? I'm the bubbler. I did a lot of singing fish, uh, <laughs> and I also did a, um, I also did some Sebastian and everything. With Sebastian was singing his song, and all which which was fun. And um, like I kind of I kind of was like a jack of all trades on that. I worked on a couple of different sequences, and then, and then you know before the film was finished, I had to go off and work on the first Roger shorts, which was um, Tummy Trouble, you, you know, and, and you know, and then later Roller Coaster Rabbit, you, you know. So those those are the shorts that were going to come out. So it was that was a busy year, 1989. There was a lot of stuff going on. And plus, we were starting Beauty and the Beast. Okay, so level with me. In Little Mermaid, the uh, hidden phallic symbols in the castle, was it just because oh, the yeah, art yeah, department yeah, was bored? Yeah. yeah, I know. I, I know. I always get the questions about all the, 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 the sexual questions, you know, things in Disney film. Um, well, the, on the poster, which, well, there's, there's nothing in the movie like that. Uh, uh, um, on the poster, the story is the, the artist who was in charge of Disney posters was being let go after 35 years. Ah. Uh. So that was like his his farewell to the studio. Was <laughs> <laughs> so he put this phallic thing in the uh, in, in in the poster? Yeah, that was that was recalled and all repainted. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, I understand. <laughs> it's like you're fired. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, F you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. because a lot of in the old movie, especially in the older movies, they put little things like that. You, you know, we call them Easter eggs. You know, the little little thing in the in, in in the movie because you know the, when you when you're creating the the artwork it's going by at like 124th of a second you can imagine people you know in the 40s going what do you think what do you think in the year 2000 people are going to be looking at this movie frame by frame don't people in the future got anything better to do than look at old movies like, no <laughs> I, I mean there's a famous story about in, in 1977 in the in the first rescuers when uh, um, when the, the Bernard and Bianca, the two little mice, and they're and they're riding on the back of this albatross, and as they're flying through the through the canyons of Manhattan, and they're going past all these office buildings, somebody put a Playboy centerfold in one of the windows, and and it goes by really fast. You know, like it's again, it's like it's like one twenty fourth of a second. So in 1977, it's like yeah, you didn't see it. Then when the movie went to video. They edited out that frame, but then you see the, the Disney films. They rotate like every seven years. They do a reissue of the 
of, of an older film. So when the film came up for a DVD release, they went back to the original 1977 negative, and all the executives in charge of the of the marketing of, of that thing were all new. You know, like the the older people had all retired. I mean, if anybody asked us, we would say, "Oh yeah, there's the nudie picture in there. You got to take that out." You know, but nobody asked us. So nine million DVDs went out. <laughs> yeah, there was great screaming, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, and uh, <laughs> they had to recall a lot of those. So. Well, I mean, there's 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 a lot of fun Easter eggs, like uh, the Three Little Pigs. There's the picture of Dad as sausage. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah and it, it, there's a ton in uh, Tummy Trouble. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We do a lot of we do a lot of jokes like that. Yeah, a little Burbank and things like that. And, um, in, in in Aladdin, um, when Jafar is talking to the Sultan, and the Sultan is was stacking all these little figures, these little toy uh, figures, like making like a little mountain out of these little toys. One of them is a beast from Beauty and the Beast. There's a bunch of those kind of jokes. But yeah, on Beauty and the Beast, it has you listed as the animator for Beast. Now, does that mean that was pretty much your primary focus? Yeah, yeah. Well, like Len Keen was the senior animator, who so so he kind of like was the head of my unit and everything. So he was doing uh, like he designed the Beast and all. And it was him, and, and I was working under him. So 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 I did a lot of the. Uh, like Glenn would say, he says, "Well, well, Tom, you, you you're doing the funny Beast. I'm doing the dramatic one." Like, okay. So I had some fun with some scenes there because it's usually like about five or six animators on each character with a lead, with a character lead. How hard was animating Genie? Oh, the Genie? Um, well, you know, so the Genie was like a much looser style than the usual Disney stuff. It was much broader. And, you know, I'd worked with Eric Goldberg before. So the two of them, the two of us kind of know, known each other for a long time. And Eric really kind of set the pace for the whole thing. Originally, what Eric did was was uh, he took he took one of Robin Williams' comedy albums, a feature of his, and animated it as a test and showed it to Robin and everything. And he was like, "Wow, that's great!" And, you know, and it was kind of a stretch too that the the studio would go so broad. It wasn't a gentle kind of comedy. It was like very wild with a lot of you know, and and Robin's doing so many illusions. You know, like we had a big argument. About at one point um, in in the film, Robin does Ed Sullivan, and we, and you know we were like, does anybody remember Ed Sullivan under sixty? You know? <laughs> it's like I remember Ed Sullivan, but I'm in my six. And the funny thing was when we ran it for children, they laughed anyway. They just said he, he, he turned into a funny man. Yeah. And then when you, when you get older, and you know, okay, that that was Ed Sullivan. So, okay, you know. And he was doing Marie Chevalier, which is another one that's all. Actually, the funny thing is, uh, um, the one that dated uh, uh, was well. Oh, yeah, he did Jack Nicholson also. So he did. Uh, you know, uh, every time you uh, you know Robin had a line, Robin would give you like seven alternatives. So you had to decide which one you want to use. You know, so that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I want to backtrack for a second because I, uh, yeah. I forgot about one that you animated on. Uh, it was. Uh, Rock and roll is basically heavy metal before heavy metal. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah that 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 was a fun piece of animation. That's where I was going. That was a fun piece of animation. You know, you had all these mm-hmm. different musical groups and everything. What what was working on that like? I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was a studio in Canada and stuff. But the but the people on it, yeah, were all big, you know, rock and roll, you know, metal fans and stuff and. 
and this this project. The problem you know that you always have with animation is that it takes such a long time to do. You know, it's not the kind of film you could sort of knock out like really quickly in a in, in a few weeks. You know, it, you know, it takes a long time to draw everything and all. And when you work with contemporary bands. The danger is by the time you're finished, the band may be finished, you know, may have broken up or something. So we're working with all these topical bands, you know, like Blondie and uh, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire and, uh, you know, Cheap Trick and stuff. You know, and you're like, gee, I hope they're still around when the movie comes out. So, yeah. (laughs) So otherwise that'd suck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that, that happens. Yeah, you know, so. And um, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of the artists and directors and stuff are expressing their love for the for that genre of music and all. And um, yeah, it was a pretty it was a pretty crazy project to work on. But uh, you know, and again too, you know, being in the early '80s and all, the audience like didn't quite know what to make of it. Like I think since then it's acquired a cult status, and a lot of people a lot of people love the film now. You know, but in the beginning, there really wasn't anything like. I mean, it was Yellow Submarine. That was about a, a, a decade or so earlier. Like the Yellow Summer is like 1968, and this is like 1983. A lot of time since then, and it, it, you know, and and this type of film was just so unique and everything that uh, at the beginning audiences didn't quite know what to do with it. But then, you know, like again, since then it's gone on to to, to sort of uh, have cult status. Back at Disney, you got a pretty big writing credit but how'd you work on with uh, the lion king oh yeah yeah i know yeah i know that's kind of a surprise yeah yeah well in the disney process the idea of um of what we call a story artist a story is that is that you know in the old system the people who's the storyboards are actually contributing a lot to the material right alongside the writer in fact, pre-1960, you know, a lot of movies like Pinocchio, Snow White, and Cinderella weren't written like, like scripts. They were actually being drawn and written at the same time. So like, you know, Michael Maltese at, at, at Looney Tunes and Joe Barbera at, at MGM doing Tom and Jerry's, they were, they were drawing and writing at the same time. So Disney kind of has that holdover tradition of the story artist being like part writer as well. And and it's funny because but then we would, we would interact with with mainstream writers like Josh Whedon and stuff, and they don't always know what to make of us, you know, you know, because here we are throwing lines in the movie, <laughs> you know, like I remember I remember on Lion King, we were all sitting around uh, arguing about about when when Simba wants to challenge Scar for the leadership of the Pride and take the leadership back, but they have to figure out how to get the hyenas uh, out of the way. They have to distract the hyenas so that Simba can confront Scar alone. So we're saying like, well, what what could they do? So Pumba and Timon have to do it. Like, what do they do? You know, and and we're going around discussing it, and finally somebody in the in the room yelled out, "What do you want me to do? Put on a grass skirt and do the hula?" <laughs> I was like, yeah, Sold. good, <laughs> you know, and it's like one of the big laughs in the movie, you know, so, you know, but, but that's what they call a story session, which is just sort of like a bullpen, you know, or a writer's room type type thing where everybody sits around in a room and they just, they just throw ideas around, you know, um, very similar to, yeah, I mean, Carl Reiner who just passed away was was in a bullpen like that, you, you know, with the Sid Caesar show, and that's where he met Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and Neil Simon. You know, they'd all sit around together and they they throw ideas around. So the Disney system is the story artists all sit around and they throw ideas around and stuff. And, and you know, and the good thing is, you know, our writers on Lion King, uh, Jonathan Roberts and Irene Mecky, 
really got into the system. They really liked it. Like Irene Mackey wrote a lot for Lily Tomlin and everything, and wrote a lot of comedy stuff for her. And uh, uh, so they were able to take this material of all these people, you know, throwing ideas around, and then and and then boil it down to you know you know a, a good strong narrative. Sheesh. So it's, it's, it sounds like writing that was just you know a hell of a lot of fun. You know, mm-hmm. just the, yeah. the pro just and just the process of working on all of these movies was just a blast. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, like when we were doing Lion King, one of the problems we had was was when you when you're coming up with physical things for lions to do, you go, well, what do lions do? Like, what do lions actually do? <laughs> they sleep, screw, and kill things. So, so okay. And two of those you can't really have in a Disney film. So right, <laughs> yeah, right. So we got left with sleeping, <laughs> and that's not very interesting. So it's like, okay, we got to come up with stuff that's that's interesting. <laughs> you <know>? So <coughs> so the lions walk around a lot. <laughs> I say it's Lord of the Rings meets lions. Yes, <laughs> it's gonna be a lot of walking. Yep. And then later, you get a writer and a director credit on a remake of one of my favorite cartoons, uh, the 2006 version of Biker Mice from Mars. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, as far as uh, like remakes and rebrands go, I thought that one was really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun and everything. The producers of that show had worked on the original show. So it was kind of like a callback thing and to get a chance to, to work with them. You know, there's a lot of, you know, you know, we got all back a lot of the original voices and all. And, um, uh, yeah, and, and, and it was my first, you know, uh, essays from, from, from the, from the Disney story department to actually going out and actually like just writing the script, you know, sitting down and actually writing an entire script. And that was an education stuff. So yeah, yeah, I wrote a couple of episodes. I'll say it, it seemed that one was a little bit, you know, they got to be a little edgier than they were in uh, the original. Well, you have to push it a little, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, because you want it to be, you want it to be new and and contemporary and stuff, not the same thing, you know. You know just like years later, like a little bit after that, um, I was at Warner Brothers working on some Roadrunner and Coyote episodes. We we did these three D shorts, and then when you're looking at it, you're thinking, okay. You know, Chuck Jones did so many Roadrunner and Coyote things, you know, and you really can't write those shows because what do you write? You know, the Roadrunner runs, the Coyote tries to, hit, you know, drop things on him and, 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 and gets hit with stuff. And that's it, you know, and, and, and you're thinking, well, Chuck did so many. We were trying to make new stuff that's contemporary to our time that didn't look like it could be done in the 50s. You know, so we would do things to go, oh, let's do a thing with a wind sail. And you go, oh, Chuck did that. Like, in, oh, okay. Well, let's try that. Oh, Chuck did that. So trying to come up with new things. Like, we had this one uh, series, which I thought was inspired, where where um, the coyote gets a Segway. <laughs> it's, it's trying to chase him, with it, which is kind of ridiculous, you know, because the things move so slowly. <laughs> and then uh, um, I did one with, like, heat-seeking missiles. Um, I wrote one uh, uh, which was where, where the coyote gets a – Gets a predator drone, but uh, they wound up not making it because I, the studio thought, like, well, you know, there's so many innocent people being killed with predator drones right now in the Middle East. It's not very, it's not in good taste. I'm like, oh, okay. But I thought it was funny. It always but, backfires on him. So, yeah. 
you know, it'd be in great taste. Yeah, yeah, you know, so, yeah, what the heck. So I can tell you my favorite Wile E. Coyote Roadrunner cartoon, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know the name of it, but I know the sequence. You know, they're running back and forth, back and forth, like always, and then they get to the series mm-hmm. of pipes, and they're running through these uh, multi-sized pipes, and they get mm-hmm. bigger and smaller, smaller, bigger, and, you know, there's little Roadrunner, little Wiley, you know, little Coyote, and then he's like, ah, oh, you know, and they turn around and go back, big Roadrunner comes out, and he's still small. He comes back, <laughs> and he runs up and stops, and there's this big Roadrunner foot, and just meep, meep. You know, he looks and looks at the camera, and holds up the sign. It's like, well, I got him. Now what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. That's very cute stuff. Yeah, true. true. It's like, yeah, he finally caught him, but he's too small to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> what was Shrek like? Because, I mean, that one was all computer yeah. animation, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. And computer animation was still kind of new and everything. You know, you know the Toy Story had just been done and, uh, you know, Pixar was on its way. But, um, it, it, yeah, I mean, actually, like Shrek won, like, the, in 2001, I think, won the Best Animated Film Oscar. And almost like the first com- uh, computer one to do that. Because, uh, you, you know, when Toy Story came out, Toy Story was an excellent film, but there wasn't a category just for animated feature yet. And all that was until 2001 was the first one that um, the Oscars would go to animated shorts. And uh, there wasn't an animated feature category because there were so few animated features being done. Like an interesting statistic in 1977, I think there was like six animated features uh, that came out in the U.S. Um, usually it's like it was like two, like the Disney film and there'd be one other one, like the Bakshi film or Heavy Metal or Rock and Roll or something. It's been averaging around 30. Like about twenty nine, thirty, like every year. It's like two a month. You know, this shows you the growth in, in, in animated film filmmaking. The fun thing with Shrek was that Shrek was like a very simple story, uh, you know, of this ogre character, and uh, um, it went through a lot of changes. You know, because originally Chris Farley was supposed to be Shrek. Yeah, like he was the original voice. And uh, and Chris was a wonderful guy. He was very funny and everything. And 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 I felt very thin next to him, which might, which is great. And uh, <laughs> that's always good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I mean, you know, remember the movie Tommy Boy? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Chris for real. That's he's like that all the time. <laughs> and and it's nice. He's a, he's a he's a very nice guy. You know, you know, like some comedians when they're not on camera, they're kind of like surly or kind of like you know bitter or something uh chris was was fun he was a lot of fun to hang out with and all but then you know he died you know uh you know he od'd and he and he'd only done like about five minutes of 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 recording so mike myers was his friend and so he came in for him and everything and then mike started doing doing stuff and then halfway through mike decided he wanted to do shrek with a scottish accent and you're like oh okay all right, we'll do a Scottish accent. And, um, you know, and Eddie Murphy was great and everything. You know, it was a lot of fun as, as a donkey. And um, a lot of jokes went around, you know, it, you know, a, a lot of material until we settled on stuff. Um, I'm the one who came up with the idea of the dragon and the uh, and the donkey falling in love with each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But in the original script, the donkey and the dragon, uh, like the dra- uh, like they go to rescue Fiona in this castle, and the dragon's chasing them all around, and they fight a lot and everything, and they defeat the dragon. And uh, uh, one of our other story artists, David Lowry, 
had done a lot of work on Jurassic Park and he did a lot of work for Spielberg. He's very good with dramatic stuff, you know, all the action pieces and all. And he was terrific. But there's one point where the, where the dragon corners the donkey who's going to kill him. And in the script, it said, oh, well, Shrek pulls on his tail. They turn around, they fight him. And I said, you know, you know, we're missing something here because we've got Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop had just come out. And we said, you know, in, in the Beverly Hills Cop movies, if you point a gun at Eddie Murphy, he starts talking. And he tries to talk his way out of stuff. So we have to, you know, he should try and talk his way out of it. And then we said, what if he tries flirting? What if he goes like, hey, I got pointy ears and you got pointy ears and I got a tail and you got a tail. And, you know, we could get it on. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the other writers went, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's go with that. Okay. You know, you know, and then it, and, and like a pebble and dropped in a pond, it just rippled out. And then everybody took the idea and just ran with it and just kind of, you know, you know, developed this whole thing. But uh, sometimes it's, it's one of those kind of accidents, you know, the, a lot of times in movies, um, you know, somebody will suggest something and everybody will go, that's a good idea. Like one of my favorite stories that Ridley Scott likes to tell is in the movie Gladiator, uh, at the very beginning when the Romans are going to fight the barbarians and all, uh, like the Romans are very uh, businesslike about it, while the barbarians are all emotional and yelling and stuff. To the Romans, it's like a job. It's like, okay, we got to, let's get this done and then we'll break for lunch, you know. And, and Ridley said he wanted the Romans to say something to each other, like a motto or a slogan. That was macho, but yet, like, like you know, like the when the Klingons go, oh, I hope you die well, you know, you know, like he wanted them to say something, you know, you know, very macho. So they go, oh, you know, hail Caesar, Ave Roma, yeah. But nothing sounded good enough, you know, like it didn't, it didn't, it didn't hit. And then Russell Crowe said his his middle school or something in 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 New Zealand had a motto written over the doorway, strength and honor. You know, and and Ridley goes, strength and honor. Hey, that's good. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> let's use that. <laughs> and it's in the movie. You know, they, they're all they're all looking at one another, going, strength and honor. You know, it's like, <laughs> and sometimes it's that simple. Uh, the happy accidents. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene in um in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when Jessica um is singing her her torch song at the beginning uh, when we first meet her. And, you know, you know, why don't you do right like some other men do? There's the nightclub audience and you, you, you bring in all these um, extras and they do what's called walla. And what walla is, is they make sounds. They make sounds like it's a room. So you're like in a room full of, of people. But yet you don't say anything specifically because because it'll interfere with the main characters doing dialogue. So they sit in the background and they go, walla, 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 walla. Yeah, so so the noises, you know. Someday when we're all allowed back in restaurants full of people, you'll you'll hear this again. But uh, <laughs> but um, but anyway, so so the nightclub there and it comes up to her torch song, and all the guys are going, oh, oh, Jessica, oh, oh, you know, you know, they're all like drooling over here and all. And then at the end, when she leans in, grabs Bob Hoskins by the tie. And pulls them out close that their lips are practically touching. And she says, why don't you do right like some other men do? Get out of here. Get me some money. To, uh, so do, well, why don't you do right like some other men do? Like that. And then like some other men. And then there's a pause. And then do for the last the last note of the song. So um, right at the moment where, where she sings that. And there's that pause. Like some other men 
do, a guy in the back went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was, I, was, I was sitting in the editing room with Robert Zemeckis and, and the directors and the producer, and we heard that, and, and, and Bob goes, is that funny? Should we leave that in? Go, yes, it's funny. Leave it in. <laughs> it works. <laughs> like, yeah, she, she had him. Yeah, yeah. Like, here's a lesson I'll give you for, like, you know, if you're ever writing comedy, and this is something an old comedian told me. He said, never argue with a laugh. You don't no. laugh, it works. <laughs> if they don't laugh, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I think that was Gary Marshall. I think Gary Marshall said that. He goes, he goes, don't argue with a laugh. He says, a laugh is, is success. Yeah, to say, you, you can't beat it. It's, it. You can always tell if it's a forced laugh or if it's just that natural as soon as it happens. Yeah, it's it, it's funny, yeah, because I, I noticed, like, you know, when I was directing and all that, that, that sometimes gags that were very elaborate to set up and, 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 and you know, and complex, and, and, and you put a lot of effort into it, you run it for an audience, and it just lays there. And like n n silence, and then sometimes the way a character says something, or the way two shots are cut together, or or you know, or just something like that, and the audience roars, just completely breaks up. And this is why, going back to the 1930s, uh, a, a lot of times you would have a test screening. You know, you get an audience of normal people and run the film for them. You know, who who have no experience with what they're seeing, and just look at like, okay, they laughed at that. That's good. Because <laughs> so, it surprises you, yeah, yeah. The things that the, the thing that you thought was a surefire laugh would just kind of like, eh, and and then something else that somebody just said and just everybody roars. I'm like, okay, they like it. Well, Tom, this has been a blast, and I'm, honestly, I could probably do this all day. <laughs> do you have any uh, upcoming projects that you want to talk about? Uh, well, see, well, now I'm kind of like semi-retired and also so i i teach and uh, and, and i'm working on books and uh again either the cookbook's out right now and i'm doing a re-edition of an older um animation how-to book called timing for animation uh which will the 40th anniversary of it, uh, of it is coming out next uh next year and uh, i'm working on a book right now of um the animation renaissance which is that period of the early 1990s, you know, like, you know, like you think a year like 1989, you know, 1989 is Little Mermaid, The Simpsons, Liquid Television, Eon Flux, you know, uh, uh, you know, Ren and Stimpy, you know, all these things were all coming around 89, 90, like around that time period. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to do a lot of behind the scenes, uh, you know, of those shows. Oh, I look forward to that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing with the cookbook too, is that even if you don't like to cook, I put a lot of stories in it just uh, like this, of like to sort of, you know, like, like I did, did a whole chapter about bars, <laughs> about the different, the diff, different watering holes that, that, that artists used to go to all the time and all, and all, all kinds of like little stories like that. Like, uh, um, uh, there's a whole thing about practical jokes, about the things artists would do with one another. Like, like, um, uh, uh, Tex Avery, who's a famous MGM director, he loved practical jokes. And, and one of the things he used to, he once did was the old Coca-Cola machines, original Coke machines, was like a, a big refrigerator laid on its side and it was full of ice water. And the, and, and when you open the lid, it was like this tub of ice water. And, and, and the Coke bottles were held by these little, uh, these little claws would hold a Coke bottle. And when you put it in a co coin, the claw would release the bottle. <laughs> 
you know, and you would take it out of the water, you know, because again, with uh, with tech savers, so this goes back to the 1940s. But what Tex would do is that Tex figured out how to open, how to get the, the bottle out, you know, of the cloth. And he would open the bottle, empty it, the, the Coke and fill it with scotch and then put it back. <laughs> so somebody would open the bottle expecting to drink a Coke. Instead, he was getting a mouthful of Johnny Walker. So <laughs> that's a hell of a practical joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all, all that kind of stuff used to happen all the time. You know, you know, because you're sitting at a desk, you know, eight hours. You, you know, the, the desks that the artists would use have these uh, hot lights, you know, like you'd have a, because um, it's a light box. So you're working under, under a lights. What somebody used to do sometimes was that, that when uh, uh, they'd open up a person's light box and put some sardines in there next oh. to the light bulb. <laughs> And after a while, going, oh my God, what's that smell? It's horrible. <laughs> That's oh, ugh. nasty stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to post the link to the cookbook in the episode mm-hmm. description. Uh, where can fans find you on social media? I got a tomcito.com, and um, yeah, you know, I'm on Facebook stuff, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't do tweets or anything like that. It's, it's like. One one social media too many for me. So so, but but mostly Facebook and linked. So so Twitter's the one that flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, and I don't tweet. <laughs> well, folks, you know where to find him, and if you don't, it'll be in the episode description. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. or alongside other great podcasters at electronicmediacollective.com and. Tom, this has been an absolute pleasure and a blast chatting with you today. Great. Thank you. I had fun, too. I could honestly sit and listen to some of these stories, like, (laughs) for hours. We might have to do this again sometime. Anytime. There you go. Thank you again for uh, stopping in and sharing your stories with us. Listeners, a lot of good podcasts out there. You didn't hear it here. Probably just a load of bullspit. So, until next time, take it easy. Ooh-wee, that sure was some bullspit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you need some help. Be sure to tune in next time.